with that, would you pray with me? And we'll open the scriptures this morning uh, and continue our series through the book of Acts. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God, we are grateful for what you reveal. That uh, We are grateful that uh, you don't leave us to our speculation, but you reveal yourself sufficiently and have done so in and through Jesus and through the Scriptures. We thank you that the Spirit is a witness to your goodness and reality. That we are not left to our own devices to find you, but you have sought us and, uh, in order to reconcile us to you and draw us into relationship. So Lord, we are grateful for that reality and want to come before you with an openness and a vulnerability to your, your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are going through the book of Acts. If you're new with us, uh, we're cruising through it. Uh, What feels to me like breakneck speed, maybe for some of you it still feels snail pace. So anyway, um, it's it's a fun book because it unveils the history of our witness as the church and shows us uh, our story, our roots, if you will. Uh, And there's always, in any age, I think a fair amount of confusion about what Christianity is. Uh, And and I've always, I've often said, and find myself wanting to say regularly, that if, if you want to reject Christianity, reject it for what it is, not for what it's not, right? So let's, let's be accurate, at least, about what it is that we're, we're pushing off. And so uh, one of the things that we see in Acts is that it's not actually just a system of random or abstract beliefs, but, um, nor a list of things to do or to avoid. It's actually all about trust in a person. Uh, and what we see is at the heart of Christianity is something that we don't talk about a lot, I think, in our modern context, it is actually this rejection of idolatry. Um, in, in fact, in 1 Thessalonians 1, 8 through 10, this is one of uh, my favorite passages in its description of early Christian faith. Uh, Paul, to this, this city, in Thessalonica, he says this to them, he says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, so God's word's going out from you in in your region, Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, right? Like people people hear about this transformation that you've experienced in Jesus. Um, So we don't actually need to say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And so one of the hallmarks of authentic Christian faith is the, obviously the embrace of Christ as the revelation of who God is, and that necessarily implies the rejection or the displacement of false gods, actually. And so when we read Acts 17 a couple of weeks ago, we saw Paul in Athens, and he was concerned about the very superstitious nature of the city, and he said that the city was littered with idols. And as modern folks, we don't imagine that we share the, the idol problem, perhaps. That since I don't struggle with a temptation to build statues to Zeus, I'm kind of okay on the score of idolatry. Right? So like we can move on and talk about other stuff. But today, what I want to do is I want to 
show how the story that we get to in Acts 19 actually uh, tells us what an idol is uh, and how they work. Um, I want to just show you four things today. that The reality of idols, the, the power and weakness of idols, the cost of rejecting them, and then the hope of doing so. So that's, that's where we're going to go today. And uh, let's begin with Acts 19, verse 21. 19 and 21. I'll just read a bit of the story, and then we'll, we'll come back through and comment on this. So, uh, after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. This sentence is really important for the rest of the story. Um, not for like Paul Harvey, but for um, the rest of Acts, the rest of the Acts story. Uh, And so what we get from here on out is Paul, just like Jesus, resolutely set to go towards Jerusalem in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Now Paul resolutely goes to Jerusalem as the springboard to go to the ends of the earth, to go to Rome. And so uh, it says that after having sent... um, I'm sorry, and having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, that's Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while longer. And so he's he's there in Ephesus, which is a chief city in that area. And it says, about that time, there arose no, excuse me, little disturbance concerning the way, another description for, for those who are following Jesus. For a man, a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis. This is a, a god who is worshipped in Ephesus. In fact, there was a, one of the wonders of the ancient world was this temple to Artemis. It was famous. It was like having, you know, it's like the Empire State Building or something like that in your city that people come and tour and check out. And so it's this remarkable work of human achievement. And so uh, he uh, was a silversmith. He made silver shrines of Artemis. Uh, It brought no little business uh, to the craftsmen. In other words, there's a whole economy built on this worship of Artemis. Verse 25, Then he gathered together the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, our whole region, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Like, how dare he? This is what he's, he's saying. Verse 27, and there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that, we, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. She might lose status as a result of this, and we might lose money. She whom all Asia and the world worship. Uh, and says, when they heard this, the other craftsmen, uh, it says that they were enraged. And we're crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, uh, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him, 
and even some of the Asiarchs, those are the rulers of the region, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Let me just stop there. How in the world does a story like this speak to the modern world? Um, What I want to do is just talk about the reality or the prevalence of idols. Um, Look at verse 26 with me. Demetrius is a silversmith, and he is... He's angry, right? He's, he's ticked off. He's, he's not a fan of Paul. He's not a fan of the Christians. And, and in fact, his entire trade uh, and his entire economic basis for his life is built on the supply and demand of idols. Right? Uh, and, and statues are just a reference point. No one really thought the thing itself was, was the God, but they, they saw it as a touch point between the God and, and themselves. And so he he, he's probably not someone who's going to go down and listen to Paul. He's probably not going to go and listen to a Paul lecture in the public square. And yet, he's become very accustomed to Paul's teaching and can actually summarize it fairly accurately. He talks about how Paul's message has become known in the entire region, and he summarizes it and says that Paul, he's persuaded a bunch of people to turn away, uh, turn away from their gods, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Right? Can you believe the guy to come into our territory and tell us like our gods are the wrong gods? Like the nerve of the guy. And, and, and so he's, he gets it pretty accurately. Right? Paul's saying, yeah, if you, if you can make a god, it's probably, probably not a worthwhile god. Right? In fact, if there's any god that's under our control, it's a god you don't have to answer to. It's actually a god of your own making. And this is part of the central message of Paul, to say actually... The creator God and redeemer God are the one true God. And and so what what this must mean is that Paul had preached regularly against idolatry or preached on idolatry. In fact, whenever he preached the gospel, he always preached a gospel that confronted or opposed idols by announcing Jesus is the world's true Lord. Therefore, we can maybe push this a little and say, I'm not sure that we fully grasp the gospel until we can see its implications as opposed to idolatry in our lives. Now, here's, here's the objection that we immediately have rise in our minds and hearts, right? That was then, this is now, right? We don't live in an animistic or polytheistic culture. We live in a secular culture, which means we barely believe in God at all to begin with, right? And so why in the world would we say we need to understand how the gospel preaches against idolatry? I think we're a little bit in danger of what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, where we think because we're further away from the ancient world, we somehow see life more clearly. In some areas, that's true. In other areas, that's significantly misled. I I would like to say that not only is it naive to understand, uh, to think that we don't have idols, but I I would also say it's it's a total misassessment of our own culture. Back in 1985, some of us were new on the scene. Some of you weren't on the scene. Uh, some of you were finishing your college degrees. I don't know. Um, this guy named Robert Bella coined a phrase in his book called Habits of the Heart, uh, where he says that the heart of American culture is this thing called expressive individualism. That's a big $10 word for you today. But what it means is at the heart of, of our culture... Is uh, and, and other sociologists and, and, and philosophers use this word as well, Charles Taylor among them, who uses this notion of expressive individualism as a way of 
describing our culture. And what it's getting at is that the highest good there is is for me to express what I want. This, that's, I should get what I want. So at the heart of our culture is about a two-year-old mentality, right? <laughs> like that's, that's what he's getting at, right? Uh, and so uh, lots of sociologists and, and culture commentators use this ter- term to describe a way of life that is assumed. That's what culture is. It's what we assume without thinking about it, by the way. Uh, it, it, this expressive individualism is a remarkable way to put it, that, that when it gets down to it, what I should get is what I want, and I should be able to express it without any inhibition and so, or a, obstacle. So let's apply that to the context of faith, for example. It, it means at the very heart of American culture is a conviction that no one has the right to tell me who God is around here. At the heart of our American way of life is this notion that I can and should determine what I believe because I'm the most important factor in my world. Now, in other words, what Robert Bella is saying is at the heart of American culture is the very thing Paul says we must not do, which is make a God of our own making. This goes all the way back to the story the Bible's been telling from the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, when humans are faced with the opportunity to seize for themselves the right to define good and evil on their own without trusting God's definition of it. That I should be able to determine that on my own. And so, what is an idol, then? An idol is... you know, I tend to, we tend to think probably of idolatry as doing really bad stuff, don't we? Like it's, that, it's the drug addiction, the porn addiction, the gambling addiction, whatever addiction to vice you can think of. And that's, there's, that's some truth in that. There's certainly idolatry written into the, the, the code for all of those types of addictions, of course. But I think we're missing the point. Because I, I think many idols are actually virtuous on the surface. The real trick of an idol is that it's almost always a very good thing. It's almost always something good. Um, and you're here, and uh, you may have a robust theology. You may have a theology degree. Uh, you've read the Bible, you're at church regularly, whatever. Um, but at the same time, if there's anything other than God that is more functionally important to your happiness, to our identity, to our hope, to our meaning, that is functionally our God, right? That's actually what idolatry is about. Idolatry is not really all about doing bad things. Idolatry is about taking a good thing and turning it into an ultimate thing. Idolatry is actually about taking a relative created thing and turning it into an absolute thing. And so it's any time we look at life and say in our hearts, as long as I get this, as long as I have this, right? Once this happens, once I get the job, then I'll be who I'm supposed to be. Once I get married, then I'll be valuable. Once I get the promotion or the house, or one, as long as my kids are healthy. And once anything other than God becomes more fundamental to our happiness and security than God, what we have is idolatry actually lurking in our hearts. Right? It's that feeling... I sometimes get when I log into my bank account and go, ah, 
right? Or it's that feeling I have when my schedule all of a sudden blows up and I have no more control over my ability to perform to the expectations I might have because my performance has become an idol and it tells me that I'm secure as long as I'm living up to a certain standard of performance. I'm sure I'm the only person who lives that dysfunctionally. Uh, And so it's anything that sneaks in that way. And and so the most powerful idols are actually the good things that we turn to ultimate things. Family is a very powerful idol. Either uh, your parents' approval or your children's success. And so we sacrifice all kinds of other things so that family can be ultimate. We'll give up on other binding commitments that take our family into a mission that's larger than our family so that way we can serve the idol of family. Or perhaps career or money, achievement or acclaim, your looks, the looks of your partner, your moral record. Right? This is church folks all the time. Right? We turn our own religious devotional life into this kind of idol and we lean on it rather than the grace of God. Uh, And so that's how this works. A romantic relationship, some kind of uh, political or social cause, or your competence, your skill, all of these very good things can become ultimate things. And the ancients knew this, and I would just say this, and I, I actually, Tim Keller says this, and I think this is really helpful. He says, they were just really overt about something we're just covert about. Right? Like they just, they were overt about it. And so you could go to any corner and there'd be a different God for different things. And they were just being very overt about something that we're really sneaky about. And so you have an idol when you'll sacrifice other good things for it. That's when you know that you're worshiping something because that something has become your God, your spiritual master, when everything else gets ditched for it because you have to get it. So, uh, idols idols are actually prevalent. They are a real thing. Let's keep reading the story. Verse 32 says this. uh, Now, some cried out, uh, some of the crowd cried out, one thing, some another, for the whole assembly was in a confusion. Idols are rarely uh, synthesizing. They're always throwing people into confusion. Uh, Most of them didn't know why they had come together. Like we're like, we're here and we're shouting. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's funny. I just see Elf. Or, yeah. Is it Elf? I'm in a room and I'm singing. We're in a crowd and we're shouting. Like, I don't know what's going on, but it seems exciting. And that's the way crowds work, right? Like, we just, it's just one big mob group thing. Uh, they didn't know what they're there for. Some of them, though, uh, some of the crowd, prompted by Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, uh, and, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. So they try to get somebody out there and reason with the mob. This is hard to reason with idolatry, by the way. Um, uh, but when they recognized that it, he was a Jew, for about two hours they cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And, and when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus... Right? Uh, this is the men of the Ephesus that were creating the problem, not the women. So, just, uh, uh, who, who is men of Ephesus? Who, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesus is a temple keeper for the great Artemis, also sometimes called Diana, and the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Right, so there's some kind of meteorite uh, backstory here. 
Uh, seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. Right? Hey, nobody's going to doubt Artemis's association with Ephesus. Okay, guys, just chill out. That's what he's saying. Don't do anything you are going to regret in the morning. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. What they're doing is they're promoting Jesus, and they're saying Jesus is actually Lord of all. You let the implications land in your life. They're not going around and saying, you know how stupid Artemis is, right? That wasn't their message. Their message was actually a very uh, uh, positive message about Jesus and his reality. And, of course, the implications displace all the other gods, but they're not, they're not there just trashing on their god. They're there telling the story of Jesus. And so he says in verse 38, If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have complaint against anyone, the courts are open. Right? There, we, have, we have a procedure for this kind of complaint. Go to the courts. Right? And then he says, uh, he says this, uh, The courts are open, and there are proconsuls. There's actually Roman authorities that you can process this stuff with. <laughs> Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek uh, anything further it shall be settled in the regular assembly. Right? We have a normal political process for this kind of stuff. For we are really, we are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Here's the second reality. Idols are both very powerful and very weak. They're paradoxically powerful and weak. You can see the power of an idol really quickly in this passage. Right? We, we don't have time to get into the full backstory of Ephesus, but it's, it's again, it's, it's deeply devoted to this god Artemis. And so they're very proud of their tribute to this god. It's, it's part of what might define the city, if you will. Right? So their, their, their city culture is really built around this thing. And so what's happening is they're experiencing this crumbling of the foundations of their society because they've placed it on Artemis. And then the Jesus story threatens the validity of that. And so they're angry. They're at the, angry at the presence of a threat to it. And Paul is, is preaching Jesus and, and has by implication right, threatened or provoked the power of the idols. So what's the power of the idols? I would say that it is control over the people. Uh, anytime we have something more ultimate than God in our lives, it will have a controlling force. And it will produce a riot in our lives anytime it's threatened. Uh, the power of idols is that when you squeeze on them or you pose a challenge to the idol, people actually get really angry. Have you ever noticed this? Like, have you ever been in a conversation with somebody, you step on something, and by all rational accounts, it shouldn't produce a gnarly response, but it does? because you probably just stepped on an idol, right? You, or you, or you, stepped on, you stepped on a raw nerve ending, okay? And so the power of the idol is that you, you can actually get pretty mad when it's threatened. If you try to take something away from somebody that gives them security or identity or meaning, people don't just get kind of grumpy about it. They go nuts on you, right? They get really mad. We do the same thing, don't we? You're trying to take away something that gives my life meaning? Like, right? get ready for it. I'm going to unload on you. And so there is this idol, or sorry, when there's an idol in our lives, it actually has the power to control our inner world, right? Our attitudes, our emotions, our inner harmony, if you will. 
I, I remember being in, I don't know if I was in middle school or high school. I was into music and played bass or whatever and auditioned for some band. I, and they didn't, they didn't let me in, right? So they were probably lame anyway, right? No. Uh, anyway, but I, but I remember I actually had like this inner dialogue where I thought I could be crushed by this or I could get so good that they just really regret their choice. And so instead of actually being crushed, right, because being accepted wasn't my idol, being right was. And so, uh, so I worked really, really hard to be awesome, right? Like I'll make them regret their decision, right? And, so, and it's interesting to watch how that idol has played out over time, right? And it's one I have to kind of constantly bat away and go, no, 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 no. Right? But it's, it's a thing. Anyway... Uh, it, so, idols have the power to control our inner lives, our inner world. They also have the power to control our external behavior. And so there's this riot in Ephesus, and people are getting worked up, and that's to put it mildly. Uh, but idols have incredible power to shape how we feel and how we act. And so that's the power of an idol. Um, but in fact, um, and I would say this too, that's part of how you know when you have an idol. Uh, be, because you can't live without it. And, and it's actually the litmus test. And if I stop and think through my life right now and go, uh, if, if any one piece falls away, does my world crumble? Right? Does any, if, if, if we squeeze on the financial end, does my world crumble? Do I lose security and meaning and purpose and identity? Or if I lose a relationship, does my world begin to crumble? Right? Uh, or if somebody else surpasses me at work, does, does my world begin to crumble? Does anything have a grip on my inner world and external behavior other than God? So why does our world crumble when an idol is provoked or displaced? It's because idols are actually also really weak. So they're powerful enough to control our behavior and our inner world, but they're also too weak to sustain our inner world and our external behavior. They, they can't handle that kind of pressure. Uh, and so they're paradoxically powerful and weak. One of the things that's happening here in Luke that he's doing is actually pretty funny. Every other time there's a confrontation in the public realm about who Jesus is and the rightful God of the world and all that kind of stuff, you get a sermon. In this case, you get a town clerk. What in the world? It's like, how are we going to resolve the problem? Let's preach the gospel boldly. Well, in this case, it's actually a town clerk who just shows, puts a little mirror in front of the people. I think it's pretty interesting. So the town clerk is, he's saying this, essentially, I think. He's saying, you say that these guys are disrupting the social order, right? That's the claim. Paul and his crew and the gospel, it's, it's disrupting your social order. But what's very clever about Luke and how Luke's framing the story and the reason he actually uses the clerk, the town clerk is saying, hey, you guys, uh, you say Paul's disrupting the social order. Who's really disrupting the social order? You guys are disrupting the social order. You're the ones who are coming in and disrupting everything, and the Romans could come in and they have every right to squash us because of the riot that you're doing. They could come in and they could declare martial law. This is a riot and you don't have any good reason for it. In fact, you're avoiding the legal system that we have set up for you. And we have all these other means through which you can actually voice your grievance, right? Uh, what, was the, what was the thing in Seinfeld, the day of grievances? Festivus, right? 
It's like, if you want Festivus, go somewhere else. But we're not doing it here. We're not going to create a riot. And so what he's saying is your idols are the basis for your social order, right? But it's actually your idolatry and the violence of the idolaters that are disrupting the social order. So the very foundation of your social order is the reason for the riot. Do you get what Luke's doing? And the way that he's putting this into the words of the town clerk. And this is actually a narrative version of something you see all throughout the Bible, which is this, that the idols we worship never give us what they promise us. They always give us the opposite. An idol that promises social order won't give you social order. They'll give you a riot. Uh, they'll give you the opposite. The ones that promise happiness don't give you happiness. They actually make us miserable. The, the idols that promise you love don't make you feel love. They, you end up more lonely. You, you won't get self-esteem if they offer self-esteem. You'll actually get insecurity. They always give you the opposite. And this works at an individual level and at a societal level. I actually think part of what we're experiencing in our own cultural moment in the West is this tumult uh, of a secular society that's actually built on an Id- whole idolatrous system. And so it's crumbling under the pressure of what can't actually hold us up. And so you're getting all kinds of riot, right? Because the God of progress and autonomy can't deliver. And so this whole picture of secularism, I think, is built on idolatry. And therefore, I'm going to say to you that I think the insufficiency of our modern outlook is showing itself. And this is nothing for Christians to be smug about. It's actually something for Christians to be deeply compassionate about and say, I know what it's like to chase an idol that doesn't deliver. But I know a God who actually delivers on his promise. And so personally, we need to learn how to ask the question, where do I have a riot boiling up in my own heart? Where is the weakness of an idol showing itself by the breakdown of peace in my own life? The idols of job or success where I can't rest until I attain a certain status, or the idols of family, which is really an idol of safety, where uh, I I really just want everything to be under the control of my own nest, or the idol of autonomy, which is a a freedom kind of thing, where a binding commitment won't ever make sense to that kind of person, but it's actually the only pathway to real freedom. And so the task of the church is actually to be aware of its own idols. And so this is why we begin Lent with a practice of examination, to ask the Spirit to give us discernment as a church body and in our individual lives. God, where, where do I have an idol lurking? And so when we see them, though, we also need to see the cost of rejecting them. This is the third point. What, what we see here is that there's no way to destroy an idol except that it always exacts a cost. What's so intriguing here is Paul is almost killed because of uh, his opposition to idols. It says this back in, I think, 20, uh, verse 30. Yeah, 30 and 31, where Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, the friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. Why? Because they'll kill him. They'll kill him. Right? And, and so... He would have been torn to pieces, right? The the rage that idolatry had stirred in the idol worshipers uh, would have led to Paul's death. And so therefore, there's really no way to oppose idols except that they cost us. There's a spiritual power behind idolatry. That's where the real power is at play. 
Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, talks about, on one hand, how an idol is nothing, and also how it is something, right? There's an idol, uh, idolatry that's just weakness and emptiness, but there's also a spiritual power behind it. And so, how do we actually smash the idols? Well, here's the answer. Luke wrote two books. We're in volume two. If you go back to volume one of Luke Acts, you see you know, a similar situation. Here in Acts, we have a situation where Paul is almost put to death by an angry crowd that's furious because of the powers and principalities that control them. At the end of the book of Luke, there's another person, Jesus of Nazareth, who was killed by a furious crowd that yelled, crucify, crucify. And the powers and principalities were behind that crowd too. Yet we're told this, that when the world and the flesh and the devil brought all that they had and all of their force against Jesus and emptied themselves of all of their uh, force on Jesus when he went to the cross, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And you might say that it was in that moment that he defeated the powers and the principalities. This is what Paul says in Colossians 2.15. It says he disarmed the powers and principalities of idolatry, right? He made a public spectacle of them on the cross, triumphing over them. What kind of death is a triumph? Well, it's the death of God himself in our place. How did he triumph? He paid a cost for idolatry. There's always a cost. Uh, and, and, and actually, when you read through the Old Testament, I'm doing this Bible read-through right now with one of my kids and one of the things that you see is that the prophets often liken idolatry, the worship of idols, to adultery, the unfaithfulness of a spouse to another. And in the Old Testament, God says to Israel, I'm your husband, you are my bride. And so the prophets, when they confront Israel on their idolatry, talk about Israel as an unfaithful spouse. And they use this metaphor of adultery. In Hosea... God actually uses this metaphor and says, I'm going to divorce you, but then I'm going to bring you back. Now, this should surprise us, because if you read through the law portion, the Torah, there's a penalty for adultery. This is always fun to read to your eight-year-old. That's right. There's a law about mold. So here we go. Um, It's actually pretty funny. A kid is like, oh, well, now we know what to do with mold. Yep. You're going to go see a priest, Milo? Like, uh, anyway, yeah. What do you mean you know what to do with mold? Anyway, um, so, what's, uh, sorry. Let's get back to the text. Um, I, Hosea, the prophet Hosea says, hey, look, I'm going to divorce you, but I'm going to bring you back. How do you do that? Well, what's the penalty for adultery in the Old Testament? It's actually death. It's death. And, and, and so it, it seems like God is is violating his own rules in some way. That he's somehow bypassing the penalty of death for spiritual adultery when he says, I'm going to divorce you but bring you back. How does this metaphor work? If you're a Christian and if you know Jesus, you know that the metaphor works from the vantage point of the New Testament. You know that the metaphor didn't actually break down, but it held together in the person of Jesus Christ, our true husband if you will, who came to earth and went to the cross and he died in our place and he bore the cost of idolatry. He bore the cost of of spiritual adultery and he died in our place and he paid the penalty and he took the punishment, if you will, so that 
he can both judge evil someday and yet at the same time have us in his arms. He can end evil without ending us because we're forgiven through what he did. And so we, of course, need to be careful as we hear this that we don't just go, oh, that's nice, it ends with Jesus, that's good news. Um, Because uh, if we're at all similar, we're all going to leave this room and go, okay, what do I need to do better about it? Like how do I how do I work harder at not being idolatrous? Well, I'm going to say that question itself reveals an inner idolatry of our own behavior and performance, right? And so, what do we do about it? We have to be very careful to not leave here with a to-do list, something I can try harder at. You might think the answer would be, I just need to detach myself and dial down my desire for stuff in this world. Well, I don't think that's ever really paid off. Uh, what God actually asks of us is that we would love Him more than other things, that we dial up desire as the Spirit of God brings the clarity of who Jesus is crashing into our life. And so you actually need to love God more in proportion than other things. Well, how do you do that? You can't just go home and say, all right, I'm going to love God more today. I met this um, Franciscan priest, maybe, no, Carmelite. Here we go, this Carmelite uh, Catholic priest on, at the airport, and he was wearing his full get-up, uh, and I just had to like chat with him about Jesus, because that seemed like fun, and we're on the little tram or whatever, and I'm like, dude, what's up, and I made, I made this claim of like, yeah, I'm a part of such and such church, and you know, we love Jesus, and this was his response, or rather, you're loved by Jesus, and I was like, oh man, like, <laughs> you're just, you're so right, like, just, okay, fine. Be a spiritual well. Uh, um, it was pretty cool. But isn't that the point? If you, if you see the story and go, oh man, I got to try harder, uh, uh, you're in danger of more idolatry. Because we don't come to God and say, hey, let me play a, let me play a hand of my righteousness to you. Because he's going to come back to us and say, you don't have the whole deck. Just come in and get the free drink. That's what he's going to say to us. And so what I want to encourage you with this morning is that you are loved. And here's the last point. It's this, that it's not simply enough to see what he has done for you, but to see that he also gives you his future. And this is the hope of rejecting idols. In in this next chapter, chapter 20, Paul is uh, giving his farewell address to the Ephesian elders, and he says this to them. He talks about the church that they're responsible to oversee, and he says it's the church that Jesus purchased with his blood, but then he goes on to say not only has he obtained the church by his death, but he also shares his inheritance with you, that you have his life now as your life. Not only has he freed us by his blood, he provides us an inheritance, and the inheritance is his own relationship to the Father, the beloved. It's his relationship to the Spirit, the one empowered. It's his relationship to the world, the one sent. And so we inherit all that is his. And so what I want to encourage you today is just to see the idols for what they are. Reject them for being false to see Jesus for what he is, as the true icon, the true idol, the true image of the true God. As Hebrews 1 says, the exact representation of God. He's the perfect representation. He's the only idol or image who delivers 
and he delivers by transforming us into his own image. He gets us in on his relation to the Father and the Spirit, and he gets us in to his reign and his rule and his future. And so what's the action step? It's to trust the true icon, the real deal who not only stands in our place to deliver us from the cost of idols, but also brings us into his place to share in his life and to bear his image. Let's pray as we go to the table. Father God, as we examine ourselves this week, we want to do so through the insight of your spirit, not with a sense that you are against us somehow, but we examine ourselves with you because you are with us and for us, and we trust that in Christ. And so we can be open and vulnerable to you because you have been utterly vulnerable for us. And so we come to the table to participate in communion. Uh, You made no mistake when you made this a, a table reality, which invites fellowship, a life of relationship. And so we want to join in that relationship and the character that it is meant to be enjoyed. That it is a a meal of joy and feasting. And so we come tasting just a little bit of the bread and juice that represents what is coming in abundance. The fullness of joy and sustenance in your presence for all eternity. We do this together as those who don't come on our merits, but who come as one one bride accepted by the same grace and the same life of the Son and Spirit in relation to the Father. We thank you today for your goodness and your grace. And we come to the table gladly, rejoicing in what you offer freely. In Jesus' name, amen.